The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Joshua, from chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southwards, towards the boundary of Edom to the wilderness of Zin at the furthest south. And their southern boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southwards. It goes out southwards of the ascent of Akrabim, passes along to Zin, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, and turns round to Karka, passes along to Asmon, and goes out by the brook of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your southern boundary. And the eastern boundary is the Salt Sea, to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary on the north side runs from the bay at the sea of the mouth of the Jordan, and the boundary goes up to Beth Hogla and passes along north to Beth Arabah. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And the boundary goes up to Debir from the valley of Achor and so northwards, turning towards Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley. And the boundary passes along to the waters of En Shemesh and ends at En Rogel. Then the boundary goes up to the valley of the son of Himon at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is, Jerusalem. And the boundary goes up over the top of the mountain that lies over against the valley of Hinnom on the west at the northern end of the valley of Rephaim. Then the boundary extends from the top of the mountain to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah and from there to the cities of Mount Ephron. Then the boundary bends towards Baalah, that is Kiriath-Jerim, and the boundary circles west of Baalah to Mount Seir, passes along to the northern shoulder of Mount Jerim, that is Chesalon, and goes down to Beth Shemesh and passes along by Timnah. The boundary goes out to the shoulder of the hill north of Ekron. Then the boundary bends round to Shikaron and passes along to Mount Balar and goes out to Jabneel. Then the boundary comes to an end at the sea. And the west boundary was the Great Sea with its coastline. This is the boundary round the people of Judah according to their clans. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter, as wife, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave him, Aksa, his daughter, as a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she got off her donkey, and Caleb said, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing, since you've given me land of the Negev, give me also springs of water, and he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God and Father, open our eyes, we pray, that we might see wonderful things in your law. And so speak to us that by your Spirit's grace we are conformed more in the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ and so drawn closer to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Let me add my welcome. Uh, particularly to those of you who are visiting us today. Uh, very sincerely, we have um, uh, plenty of extra food brought in addition to the, um, 
the food that people have brought for themselves. So if you didn't realize today was our sack lunch Sunday and you're thinking, oh, I don't have any plans for lunch, you do now. Uh, we would consider it an honor if you join with us. We've got some food. There'll be a whole table for you guys to pick from. If you don't like it, you can always come and take some of mine. Um, you're most welcome. It'd just be great to get to know you. So then, Joshua chapter 15. A few months ago, we were working through the book of Joshua, one of the earlier chapters, and uh, I introduced uh, a subject which is familiar to some, though perhaps not all of you, the subject of post-millennialism. Post-millennialism is an eschatological viewpoint which can be defined formally in this way. Christ will return only after, hence post, the millennium. That is the long period of time uh, described figuratively as a millennium in the book of Revelation, the thousand years. A long period of time during which the gospel spreads as it is doing now. The church grows as it is doing now. Human society and culture is transformed. And the kingdom of God will grow during this long period to reach gradually a very great size, like the seed that produces a harvest 30 or 60 or 100 times what was sown, or like leaven that works its way through the whole of the dough, or like a rock that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And eventually, one day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then the end will come, 1 Corinthians 15. Then Jesus will return only to a world which is ready to welcome him joyfully, post-millennialism. And I preached a sermon entitled something like Introductory Post-Millennialism back in chapter 10. The kingdom belongs to Christ. It's his. He's given it as a gift to his saints. Rather like, you remember in Daniel chapter 7, where you've got the, the vision in which the greatness and the power of the kingdoms of all the earth is given to the Son of Man, and then in the interpretation in the second half of the chapter, it's given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And then it grows gradually. We've got to be ready for this long haul. That's an introduction to post-millennialism. Then, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, a couple of weeks later, we preached a, I preached a sermon in, in which I referred, I think, to intermediate-level post-millennialism. Uh, I talked about the necessity for nations and institutions and cultures not only to rise and grow, but to die. Probably, what we now think of as Western civilization is doomed. But something else greater will rise from its ashes. Death and resurrection, just as it's the pattern for Jesus' life, and therefore the pattern for our lives as individuals, is the pattern for the whole of human history. Death and resurrection is what the universe is about, which is why Jesus died and rose, because he is what everything is about. And therefore, our task is to plant seeds, so to speak, in the rubble that will last for, well, a thousand generations, because that's how long God has promised to show grace and mercy to us intermediate-level post-millennialism. So perhaps you can guess where we're going today. Not entirely tongue-in-cheek. I want to, maybe, advanced-level post-millennialism is where we're headed today. Just to um, uh, help you out, the illustration that I used, which will, um, I hope, illuminate a little bit um, what we're building on top of those previous foundations. I ask you to imagine yourself marooned on a vast, deserted continent, do you remember? And really, uh, what you need to do, you're there with your church and your family and a few friends, and your task is to, well, do the right thing until you're, well, until somebody arrives. And the question, like, what should you do, will depend on your eschatology. If you're expecting Jesus to come back at any time and whisk you away then really you'll just probably hang out on the beach, uh, learn to surf, 
Uh, try and do enough to keep yourselves alive, but you won't be particularly bothered about building for the long term because, hey, who cares? It's all going to burn anyway, and Jesus could, ma- could come back at any moment, so there's not much point in doing anything much else. That's not the Bible's picture of Christian eschatology. That's not a biblical doctrine of history. The right picture, of course, is to recognize that nobody's coming back for thousands, perhaps tens or hundreds of thousands of years, and when they come, it will be the king of that land who will want to see what you've done with it because he's planning to move in with you. He's not coming to take you away from it to head off somewhere else. He's going to come and join you there. And so your task is to build for that long-distant future. That's the picture that post-millennial eschatology would give you, to be ready to build for many generations, perhaps hundreds or thousands of generations into the future so that when Jesus returns, he will see the fruit of what his spirit has produced through us many generations from now. So what would advanced level post-millennialism add to that picture? Well, you may have noticed that that illustration was severely incomplete in a couple of key areas. And it's these areas that I want to explore with you today. First, I slipped in there the idea that this vast continent is apparently apparently deserted. Nobody there. Well, I've got news for you. It's not. You're not marooned on a vast, deserted continent, a blank slate with nobody else getting in your way. There are other people, rebels against the king, building alternative, ungodly, wicked, evil, destructive institutions and social worlds and structures, all designed to stand against the ways of the king who is coming back. And then secondly, I neglected to mention that large tracts of that continent are not rolling green fields. They are a barren, desolate wasteland. And your task is to cultivate that. Uh, If you're thinking, if you read Lord of the Rings, um, think it's not all like the Shire. Some of it's like Mordor. You've read uh, Tolkien's description of the Shire. It's like green rolling hills, fertile plains, homely ale houses and happy homes, just like England. Beautiful. Mordor, quote, the gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling muds, sickly white and grey, as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth, fire-blasted and poison-stained, stood out like an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the reluctant light. I didn't think I could do better than that. That's Tolkien's description of Mordor. That's a reasonable illustration of vast tracts of this once glorious world that have been ruined by its inhabitants. You are not like many settlers of large lands once imagined themselves to be, standing on the brink of a virgin perfect wilderness. You are going to run into other people who got there first, who in this case have been ruining it. And your task is to cultivate a broken, ruined land in the face of people who hate the king in whose name you're doing that cultivation. You have a much more difficult job, we all do, everywhere you look, and just think about the world you see as you look around you. This is obviously what you see. Everywhere around you, you see the effects of sin, do you not? Everywhere around you including in yourself. Okay, that's, 
super advanced post-millennial. We'll come to that another time. But you see the shape of ruined cities and destructive institutions and social structures that actually make it quite difficult for you to cultivate the land, so to speak. Your challenge is to build the kingdom not in Hobbiton, but in a pagan wilderness. And it's to that task I want to turn today. Now, I've got some good news because uh, we're not the first to face this challenge. In the passage that I read just a moment or two ago, uh, we met Othniel and Axa, who have some advice for us. Now, just a quick reminder, I mentioned this last week, just the shape of the book of Joshua is divided roughly into four parts. The first four and a half chapters or so, they're entering the land from halfway through chapter 5 or towards the end of chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 12 they're conquering the land and in chapters 13 through 21 they're distributing or allocating the land to different tribes and much of it is filled with these long lists which look to us very tedious they're not very tedious of course because if you knew the names of the places as I mentioned last week these would set your heart on fire with excitement about what the laws are doing to give you this glorious inheritance it's like if well the illustration I used last week it's like you get Texas you get Fort Worth, it's like, woohoo! Because you recognize the names of the places and you see in them God's kindness to you. And scattered through these long narratives, this, this long, these long lists, are four so-called land-grant narratives. They're little conversations that take place, that punctuate the long lists. Last week we had Caleb talking to Joshua. This week we've got the second one, which is um, Caleb, this time, talking to Axa, his daughter, and Othniel. And um, just before we jump into that, I just want to say a word or two. I mean, I, I bothered to read all those first 12 verses because they are significant. One of the things that's significant about the first portion of today's reading, you know, that long, long list of Judah's tribal inheritances, one of the things that's significant about it is it's so detailed. So detailed. In fact, there are points between verses 6 and 8 where you've got a border, a length of border, which is only like 18 miles long, but it's got 12 or 13 little markers on it. And the reason is, of course, because it's such a significant area. And the combination of the detail with which um, Judah is described and the completeness of their territory as it's depicted sets them out as like a model tribe. So remember last week, Caleb is like the model Israelite. Judah is the model tribe. So what are you supposed to do as members of the tribe of Judah? Well, Othniel and Axa are going to show us. And you come to this conversation, and basically these two main characters each teach us something very significant about what you're supposed to do. When you land here in this glorious and wonderful world where you're seeking to live faithfully, you're seeking to raise your families Christianly, you're seeking to live as a disciple of Jesus, and you, you keep running into obstacles the whole time. Because it's not the Shire, and you're not the only people here. Parts of it are like Mordor, and the land is filled with rebels against the king. So what are you supposed to do? Well, first, Othniel has something to teach us. Othniel, we discover, looked around at this pagan culture and saw in it things that needed to be preserved. Astonishingly, Othniel, who is incidentally the first judge in the book of Judges, so he's the paradigmatic judge as well, did not destroy the city that was given to him. He captured it, which is not the same thing. He harvested then the fruits of the ungodly culture which he ran into. Let me show you. Look at verse 13. I'll just talk you through this and we'll see the narrative as it unfolds. Verse 13, 
According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he, that's Joshua, gave Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion of the people, among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. Just, that picks up from the end of chapter 14. Remember when that's what um, uh, Caleb asked to receive an inheritance of this place, and then Joshua gave it to him. This is where he gives it to him. And then verse 14, he goes out and conquers it. Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. Um, uh, Anak was the, the, um, uh, the, the great patriarch of this um, community, this Canaanite community, and Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai were the three guys who back in Numbers 13 and 14 all the other spies were afraid of. These are the giants in the land. These are the ones who... Um, that all the Israelites who ever aspired to be in the military lived in fear that they might run into Sheshai or run into Ahiman or run into Talmai. And here Caleb's like, well, I think we can deal with that. And so he drove them out of their city. And then, verse 15, he continued his conquest. He went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, the name of Debir was, formerly was Kiriath Sefer. Those names are really important. We'll come to that in a second. And he didn't do what you expected him to do. You might expect he just had this great victory, he's on a roll, so we're just going to carry on. We've knocked off Kiriath Arba, let's knock off Kiriath Sefer. We'll do all this in a week and then we'll have done a fairly good job of things. But it's not what he does. Verse 16, he takes a different approach. Caleb said, <clears throat> I've got an idea. Whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. Now, what's going on here? It turns out that Caleb has three sons. Their names are Iru, Ella, and Naam. They're mentioned in First um, Chronicles 4. And he also had a daughter by the name of Aksa. Now, don't get him confused. There's another Caleb in First Chronicles 2 who's also got a daughter called Aksa. And they lived like hundreds of years apart. Don't get them muddled up. Some people do. But it turns out Aksa's not married. Now, we don't know why. And given that Caleb's 85, it's possible that she's, you know, no longer in her sort of late teens and early 20s. It's possible, though not certain, that you know, she's somewhat older, and therefore, if that's the case, presumably she just hasn't found anybody who's suitable yet. That is to say, she hasn't found anybody who meets the required standard. And even if that's not the case in this instance of Aksa and Othniel, it does highlight something which certainly flows out of other scriptural considerations, which is you don't just go marry somebody, anybody, just because I'm 20-something. Like it's um, some of the wisest people wait until the right person comes along, because they have to wait. Well, um, obviously, uh, uh, Caleb is not going to just accept anybody as a husband for his beloved, precious daughter. He's looking for a great man. And how do you figure out who a great man is? Well, you give him a challenge. Now, again, I don't want to suggest that this is exactly how you should do things, fathers. Right? <laughs> Although, the idea appeals to me somewhat. Um, how would you cope with a significant challenge? And that's the challenge that he lays before. Anybody who conquers this city, to him will I give my daughter as wife. And in verse 17, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, that is, Kenaz is the brother of Caleb, so Othniel was actually his nephew, captured it, and he gave Aksa his daughter as wife. So, Othniel wins the bride by capturing the city. Now, there's something very significant going on here. And the first clue that there might be something significant is in the name. The word Kiriath Sefer means um, city of books. The word Debir, which is its other name, means reading, or it comes from the verb to read. 
And it seems, therefore, most likely that this was a city that was well known for its literary output. It's possible that there was a library there. In fact, we know that there were libraries in Canaan because we've dug some of them up. Archaeologists in the last few decades have dug up various stashes of clay tablets. One that was discovered, I think, back in the 1990s. They found uh, legal texts, they found ethical texts, like basically written in cuneiform, which is a form of writing made by pressing a little pointed implement into a, a soft clay tablet, and then you fire the clay and it makes it permanent. Well, they found, they found a mathematical multiply, multiplication table. It's like really cool, stuff they dug up in the desert in Israel. Uh, and it seems likely that Debir, the reading city, the city of books, got its name because it was home to a library. A place, in other words, that was a repository of Canaanite, or dare we say wisdom, literature, legal and cultural and philosophical and ethical reflection was stored there. And notice what he did. Verse 16, Caleb says, whoever strikes Kiriath-Sephir and captures it, they want this destroyed. And verse 17, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. The contrast is even clearer in the parallel passage, actually, in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1 contains a kind of synoptic parallel to this text, where Jerusalem, a religious center, is burned in Judges chapter 1. And then immediately afterwards, Kiriath-Sephir, Debir, is not burned, it's captured. So clearly, there's some kind of contrast being drawn between what are you supposed to do with pagan religion? Okay, well, I think we're, <laughs> we're sort of done with that. We won't be needing those idols anymore. But what are you going to do with the fruits of Canaanite literary, philosophical, cultural output? Well, it might not be all bad. Otherwise, why keep it? And so that's what Othniel does. In other words, he seems determined that any goodness, any residual goodness in this pagan culture should be kept. And it poses some quite difficult challenges for us because what we'd like to have, wouldn't we? We'd like to have a really, really nice, sharp and clear divide. And at one level, we do. We have a, you know, we're all good Vantillians, right? There's no neutral territory. There's no uh, ethical grey. It's black and white. And yet, in the realities of history, in the realities of the world that we inhabit, we find that for various reasons, some of the white leaks into the black. There are a couple of theological considerations to bear in mind here. Um, and I've, I've mentioned these in different contexts before. I want to mention them briefly again, just to orient us theologically to this. The first is the doctrine of common grace. You, quick show of hands, you've heard of the phrase common grace. Don't be frightened. Yeah, okay. So, the phrase common grace refers to the grace that God gives commonly. That is to say, that the, the ways in which he's kind to everybody, in contrast with what is sometimes called special grace, the grace that is showered only upon those who are in union with Christ by faith, those who believe in Christ. And common grace includes, well, he causes his reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He, common grace includes the ability to think rationally. Common grace includes a measure of ethical restraint. A, a, a consistent unbeliever, if you, again, I, I'll parade my Vantillian bona fides at this point, let the hearer understand. If, 
A consistent unbeliever would go around killing everybody he possibly could, then killing himself. An absolutely consistent person who denied the existence of the God of life, who's trying to live that out in every possible way, would bring death everywhere. And what we actually find is that, well, people don't do that. Some unbelievers help granny across the road. Some actually happen to be quite good at poetry and music and maths and logic and all kinds of things which are beautiful gifts of God. Now, some of it, they've picked up from the church. And in fact, it's not always easy to disentangle what God has, so to speak, given to an unbelieving, let's say, an unbelieving scientist by way of insight and understanding. What's he given directly to him or her as a gift of common grace? And what has that person got kind of second-hand as a, as a consequence of living in a world which has been shaped by the gospel? And so some uh, theologians speak of middle grace. So you've got special grace, God gives it to the church. Common grace, God gives it to everybody. And then middle grace, unbelievers steal it, sometimes without re- realizing they're doing so, from the church. And some of you young people are at university, and some of your professors are really good, right? And they're not all believers. Like, where'd they get that from? They understand the way God's world works. It's some kind of mixture of middle and common grace. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do when we take the universities? Which we will. Maybe not this year or next year or next generation. What are we going to do? Burn them all down? You want to burn down Harvard? I don't want to. I don't want to burn down Harvard. Let the... Let the FBI understand. Um, <laughs> sorry, we're not even talk about that. Um, because even in God's grace extends to and in and through the hands of those who don't acknowledge him. Which is actually why, and this is a second consideration, just to bear in mind, um, redemption itself is not escape from creation. Redemption is always transformation of creation. I, I was reading um, Herman Barvink, which is just a good thing to do, especially when your back's out and you can't walk around and do stuff, so you sit down a lot, so you have to read. So read Herman Barvink, much better than reading whatever's on the internet. That's what he says. He says, The substance of the city of God is present in this creation. Just as the grain of wheat upon dying in the ground produces other grains of wheat... But recognize 1 Corinthians 15. Just as the believing community is formed out of Adam's fallen race, well, that's the best example of how God takes broken things and renews them. You and me, we're made of the same stuff that unbelievers are made from. It's just God has breathed fresh new life into us by his spirit and is sanctifying our created capacities. He continues, as the resurrection body is raised from the body that's dead and buried in the earth, It's new in the sense it's renewed, but not that it's completely different from the previous one. So too, here we go, by the recreating power of Christ, the new heaven and new earth will one day emerge from the fire-purged elements of this world. And our task, I want to suggest to you, is to harvest them ahead of time. And it's one of the most difficult things to do. And it frequently prompts quarrels among among believers. So we're going to talk about it. Because the best thing to do, if you've got something where people could disagree, is have a sensible conversation about it. I I gave an example um, last uh, time I spoke about this. Um, Gustav Mahler, remember I I even sang to you the first few bars of the Resurrection Symphony, Symphony No. 2, all those malevolent, grunting 
cellos and basses and then and he got like listen to the first minute and a half if you didn't listen to the whole thing after the last time I mentioned this and you get this glorious explosion of musical wonder and all the violins sort of surging through and then these trumpets minute 90 seconds it will be the best 90 seconds you spend today apart from worshiping God now Gustav Mahler was an absolute scoundrel there he is writing a symphony called the resurrection symphony you know his wife Alma she initially when somebody said you should meet this guy she refused to meet him I don't want anything to do with this man because of the reputation that he's got of seducing all the young ladies who wanted to make it in the opera when they finally got married, uh, he was a terrible husband, overbearing. and uh, like He insisted that she quit music because there's only room in this household for one composer. It's like, you marry a, you're a composer, you marry a woman who loves to compose and create, and you say, you've got to stop because there's only room for me. It's like, what kind of a... But I want to insist on biblical grounds that we'll be able to tune in to Marla too in glory. Well... You see how it gets complicated, right? Because I like Marla. Somebody else over there likes Guns N' Roses. So Saul Hudson, that guitar solo at the beginning of Sweet Child of Mine. Like, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> but you, you know... You know that started off like as a warm-up? And Axel came to him and said, what's that? He said, I'm just warming up. He said, that's awesome. We should make a song out of that. So what... What do we do? Do we say, well, music will be redeemed, and the way it will be redeemed is by stripping out Guns N' Roses and Black Sabbath and all that nasty stuff? Or do you say, no, no, Guns N' Roses will be redeemed, and we just have to change the words? I have no idea. Like, I genuinely do not know. So we need to think about it, won't we? In other words, one of the things that we need to do in appropriating aspects of the culture... This is the point of all I've been talking about for the last 10 minutes. One of the things that we'll have to do in appropriating aspects of the culture we're surrounded by is to think really carefully. Not leap to conclusions. Seek wisdom. You don't want to just end up sanctifying your own preferences. You know, I like WWE. So that's going to be... Well, maybe sports will be sanctified by the removal of that. Or maybe there's a way of doing wrestling, which is honouring to God. I actually don't know. I don't know. Um, I think we could probably make some progress thinking about some things that definitely wouldn't make the final cut, but it's not easy. I think one of our dangers is perhaps um, fearfulness. We're worried that we might, you know, you crack open the door a little bit and you just open the floodgates and goodness knows what's going to come in. Well, no, fear isn't the thing that drives careful Christian theological reflection, is it? It's most pressing, actually, for those of you who are educating your own children or other people's children. Because like, you've got to work out what to teach them. So what do you do? Do you, do, you, um, do you rescue philosophy from Plato? Or do you rescue Plato? Well, light the blue touch paper and stand well back while the homeschoolers argue about that one. No, no. Let's think. I don't know. I don't think there's an easy answer to this. But what we mustn't do mustn't, mustn't do, is say, well, it's, it's pagan. Don't want anything to do with that. Can you see the logic there just won't work. We have to do better than that. Think carefully. Being ready to criticise our own, uh, really what I'd like to do, really what I'd like to listen to, really what clothes I'd like to wear, really what sports I'd like to get involved in, really what career I'd like to have. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm redeeming 
that? Well, you might be. But you might not be. You might just be jumping straight into pagan, pre-Israelite Jerusalem, and that needs to be burned. Can you see the difficulty we have? So having presented you with a problem, you go away and solve it. Thank you. No, seriously, because it's not easy. And just raising it in this way, hopefully, will highlight for you some of the complexities, and then we can talk about them. So that's Othniel. More briefly, I promise. Axa. Let's think about this remarkable lady. Axa brought water to a barren wilderness. Just look what happens, um, verse 18. So um, uh, they've just basically got married, uh, verse 18. When she came to him, that's a, well, cut a long story short, they've just got married. Uh, she, that's Axa, urged him, Othniel, her new husband, to ask her father, Caleb, for a field. It's like, hey, we just got married. I haven't got my present. <laughs> you know, go and ask dad. Go and ask my dad for a gift. A field would be nice because obviously you've got to live somewhere, got a farm, etc., got to eat, where else are you going to get food from? And then what's interesting is uh, Othniel sort of disappears from the narrative, and Axa takes over. Now, I don't think what's happening here is like, I don't think you've got a Genesis 3 replay with um, the woman sidelining the husband or the husband stepping out of the picture. I think what you've got is here, for reasons I'll show you in a couple of minutes, so a, a, a thoughtful, articulate, determined woman engaging in conversation with her father. I'll show you. Second half of verse 18. She got off her donkey, more on that in a second as well, and Caleb, her father, said to her, so what do you want? Literally, what to you? Like, sup? <laughs> she said to him, look, give me a blessing. Since you've given me the land of the Negev, there's a clue, by the way, that she's already received her gift, so there's something cut out often you're presumably involved in the transaction, going to Caleb, hey, can I have some land? Yeah, you can. Uh, here's the Negev. We're then skipping ahead to the crucial bit. You've given me land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Right, so why would you need springs? Well, Negev. You know where the Negev is? If you look at a map, if you're one of those people who've got one of those um, Bibles that's got maps in the back, you'll see the Negev is down in the south. It's part of the inheritance of Judah. And it's just a desert. Now, it, even the word Negev subsequently came to just mean desert or dry southland. It just meant, you know, barren wilderness. And it's possible here that she actually had land in the Negev, or it might be land that's like the Negev. It literally says Negev land. But bottom line is, it's a desert. Hey, Dad, look, <laughs> thanks for the inheritance. There's plenty of dust and not a single thing growing. Look, and notice what she says. She doesn't say, please give me somewhere else. She says, please give me also springs of water. Now, there are no springs of water, clearly, in this portion of land that she's got. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so barren. So it seems what happens is that you, you've got this parcel of land. Imagine, you know, I don't know, 10 football pitches. And then Caleb says, okay, you can have the next bit of land along which has got some springs in it. Best of luck, as Calvin wouldn't have said. In other words, he gives her the means to solve the problem that she has before her. He doesn't solve the problem. She's still got desert, but now she has desert here plus water there, and she's got to figure out how to get this to that. Fortunately, irrigation has just been invented about 1,000 years ago in Egypt, which would have been useful because that's where the Israelites just come from. So they probably should have picked up something about that. It's just an interesting approach as a father, isn't it? I mean, there's so much we're learning here, right? We can't all be farmers in Gilead with Reuben and Manasseh. 
We can't all have the well-watered land of the Jordan that Lot saw in Genesis. Some of us have got to farm the wilderness. Some of you have to farm barren land. Some of you will get a leg up in life. You'll have, you know, silver spoon in your mouth, as we say. Is that an American expression as well? I'm discovering it's not. Forget about it. Don't worry. Maybe it is. It is. At least one person's heard of it, watching too many British soap operas, right? Um, But some people, you get handed a plate of lemons. And what do you do if you get handed a plate of lemons? You make lemonade. It's exactly what AXA does. It's actually quite good advice for fathers. Um, Don't give your children solutions. Give your children problems. I'm, I'm being quite serious now. Give your children problems that they jolly well should be able to solve, ideally if they grow just the next bit, and then you've got to try and help them to grow the next bit. I'm so tempted to tell the story about that big hole in your backyard. I won't tell it now, though. but ask me later about the huge hole that one, of, one or two of the young men at All Saints have dug. Talk about giving your children problems, and talk about them solving it and growing into solving it. Outstanding. In other words, what we've got here, Othniel and Axa both faced formidable problems right at the start of their married life. They've got to make the land fruitful. They have to, well, they want to have children. They want to inherit the promise God gave to Abraham. They want to fulfill their part in subduing the world, filling the world, and they've got desert. And it it speaks, it seems to me, so powerfully to people who find themselves in analogous situations where you are conscious, mostly, of the non-ideal character of your circumstances. You have a learning impairment, so school is difficult for you. Or you have a chronic illness, so life is just difficult for you. Or you're struggling financially, so like everything is just difficult for you, or you just lost your job and everything's about to get difficult for you. Or more subtly, perhaps, you've, you, you loved your parents and they loved you best they could, but they weren't great parental role models. Isn't that the case? In, do you know people like that? Is that the case with you? And actually, you get to a certain point and you just don't know what to do. And you realise, to your shock, that it's like, Other people overcome this because they just watched their dad do it, and I have no idea what to do. Or it's your work is awkward, or you're trying to sell a house and you can't, or you're trying to buy a house or you can't, or you... (laughs) Well, it's topical this week. You just paid off your student loan, and now you discover you've got to pay off somebody else's. (laughs) You didn't even go to college. Thank you. Life is just full of non-ideal circumstances. Full of non-ideal circumstances. And you're a Christian. You are not a victim. You're not a victim of God's providence. You're an heir of God's providence. You are where you are precisely because he put you there. It may be the case It may well be the case that you get off to a slower start. It may well be the case that as you look, you know, you're really doing the best you can and you look at other people, other families, other dads, other kids, other mums, and and you think, I'm 
I don't feel like I'm achieving as much as they are. Fine, you're not competing with them. Don't, don't compete with other people. It might genuinely be that your family life is more difficult and proceeds at a slower pace for all kinds of reasons. But what don't you do? Lord, please give me something else. But you've given me land in the Negev. Please give me land in the Jordan Valley. But can't I have a bit of Jerusalem? Can't I have the bit by the gate so I can just charge taxes, tolls, and people just come in now and they're like, oh, this is easy. No. I have some water, and you have to figure out how to make pipes to transport it. C.S. Lewis encountered a situation like this. He, he was um, a university lecturer at Oxford in autumn 1939 at the outbreak of war, and he preached a sermon which has become deservedly famous called On Learning in Wartime. And um, what he was addressing was the, the challenge that many students face, where many of you read this sermon or, or essay, where it's like, this is not the ideal time to be doing our work, is it? And of course it's not. And he wrote this, or preached. There are always plenty of rivals to our work. We're always falling in love or quarreling or looking for jobs or fearing to lose them or getting ill or recovering, following public affairs. If we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. I'll just wait till I've got my new job sorted out. I'll just wait, oh, wait till the kids are left home. Then I'll start reading my Bible. You know. The only people who achieve much are, the, are those who want, in his case, knowledge. But whatever it is, the only people who achieve much are those who want it so badly that they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. Favorable conditions never come. You, you're just where you are. And you might fix whatever problem you were thinking about a couple of minutes ago, and then something else will happen. Well, another plate of lemons, another jug of lemonade. And Axa is the great example of this. She's just, she's not given the start in life that you think everybody else got. Like she's given her version of all the problems that you're mulling over, and she just got on with it. What a remarkable woman. In fact, she's, she's portrayed in a really uh, distinctively, uh, flattering is the wrong word, positive way in this text. I mean, she, the daughter of Caleb, she receives this blessing from him. Um, but notice, I mean, this is a really interesting moment. We, I mentioned earlier that I'd come back to it. Look, verse 18. Um, she came to him, and she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she got off, literally, she got off the donkey. Like, what donkey? There's <laughs> no donkeys mentioned in the book of Judges, uh, Joshua. There's a couple in the book of um, Judges, mostly dead ones because people waving their jawbones around. Um, the donkey. We're supposed to know what this donkey is about. It's the donkey, not a donkey. So you search around in the Bible for other well, women who ride donkeys, and you find one. In fact, you find a couple of people who do quite similar things. Abigail on a donkey, Rebecca on a camel. They take the initiative to approach a man riding the animal, they get down from the animal, they make a request in connection with marriage, and then they receive what they asked for. Like, so Axa, Rebecca, and Abigail. Now I look around here, there's loads of Abigails. There's a Rebecca or two. Where are the Axas? Some of you, you, some of you are going to have daughters soon. I, I checked online. If you want a really unique name, 
I, as far as I can make out, there were no axes born in America last year. <laughs> the name means um, uh, adornment or ankle bracelet. Beautiful name, not too difficult to spell. What's to stop you? You're welcome. <laughs> and there's, of course, there's somebody else who, who gets off a donkey. Somebody else who sees desolation all around him. In his case, it's in the form of the money changes in the temple. It's like the people of Israel who are like the fig tree that bears no fruit. And, oh yeah, he sees the fig tree that bears no fruit. He sees the hostile and aggressive leadership that hates him. And actually, in Luke's account of Jesus' donkey-riding journey, um, he sees the city in ruins and he weeps over it. Remember? Because he's got to give his life to save and renew this city. Axa is like... Well, turn it around the other way. Jesus is the greater Axa. The one who got down off the donkey and committed his life to renewing the ruined world that he saw before him. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, thank you for these remarkable characters, this remarkable narrative. And we pray, please, would you foment within us the spirit of Othniel and the spirit of Axa to stand with wisdom amid the swirling tides of pagan confusion and draw out of it that goodness with which you've put there. And to stand against the temptation to run from barrenness rather than seeking to make the desert bloom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.